We're going to be in 1 Timothy chapter 6, beginning in verse 3, as we are getting close to the end of our study of this great epistle. We'll begin in verse 3. If anyone teaches a different doctrine and does not agree with the sound words of our Lord Jesus Christ and the teaching that accords with godliness, he is puffed up with conceit and understands nothing. He has an unhealthy craving for controversy and for quarrels about words which produce envy, dissension, slander, evil suspicions, and constant friction among people who are depraved in mind and deprived of the truth, imagining that godliness is a means of gain. But godliness with contentment is great gain, for we brought nothing into the world, and we cannot take anything out of the world. But if we have food and clothing, with these we will be content." But those who desire to be rich fall into temptation, into a snare, into many senseless and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evils. It is through this craving that some have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many pangs. So as we begin to wind down this wonderful letter, we have ended the section which we previously studied over the last two to three weeks, which focused on this theme of honoring. So we looked at honoring widows and honoring elders, and last week, slaves honoring their masters. And our passage today is the last block of instruction that Paul gives before he concludes out the letter. And Paul continues to instruct Timothy on the importance of sound doctrine, godly contentment, and the danger of wealth. And the reason Paul is concerned about this is because he loves Timothy, he loves the leadership, and he loves the church at Ephesus. And we know that all of these issues that he addresses today are important for the church of Jesus Christ. Because sound doctrine is important because behavior follows doctrine. Godly contentment is important because no other source of contentment can ultimately satisfy a person. And the danger of money, as we know, can lead to all sorts of problems, not only within the life of the church, but within the life of us personally as well. So as we unpack this text today, Paul is warning Timothy about three things. Number one, the danger of a different doctrine. Number two, the motive for godliness, and then number three, the desire of riches. So, the danger of a different doctrine, the motive for godliness, and the desire of riches. Number one, the danger of a different doctrine. This is what this whole letter has been about. Paul is writing to Timothy because he is concerned that some within the church at Ephesus were spewing a doctrine that was leading people away from the gospel. And in chapter 1, if you think all the way back to September, we are told that these teachers were devoting themselves to myths and endless genealogies. They were wandering into vain discussions. And Paul tells us they did not understand the very things by which they were asserting confidently. So what then, the question becomes, would constitute a different doctrine? 
And Paul gives us the answer to this in verse 3 of our passage. It would be any doctrine that does not agree with the sound words of our Lord Jesus Christ and the teaching that accords with godliness. The words of Jesus Christ here means all of the contents of the gospel. Anything that relates to what Jesus taught, not only in the canonical gospels of Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, but that gospel that is on the back of your bulletin that we read almost every single week. So a different doctrine would be anything that would go against that little boxed message on the back of your bulletin. For example, any teaching that would say Jesus is not the only way to salvation. Any teaching that would refute the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus. Any teaching that would refute the virgin birth of Christ. Refusing to believe that Jesus was both fully God and fully man. These would all be examples of what would contradict the truth of the gospel. What one believes ultimately about Jesus is either going to lead them to believe sound doctrine or lead them to believe false doctrine. And the only accurate way that we have to stay within the confines of what Paul describes here as sound doctrine would be to stay as close as we possibly can to the Bible. What we have been given about who Jesus is and why he came. Now, what about this statement of what sort of teaching would accord with godliness? And it's very simple. The teachings of Jesus accord with godliness. So in conclusion, sound doctrine would focus on the teaching of Jesus, which will ultimately accord with living a godly life. If you desire to live a godly life, you simply must follow the gospel of Jesus Christ. This is how we grow in godliness and holiness. Now, what would describe someone who is teaching a different doctrine? Look at verses 4 and 5. It gives characteristics of one with different doctrine. We're told that these people are puffed up with conceit and that they understand nothing. The word for puffed up here means to be so arrogant as to be practically demented. Have you ever talked with somebody before that they were absolutely wrong about the things that they were saying, but they were also absolutely convinced that everything that they were saying was right? This is someone who is puffed up. This is what Paul is talking about. They are so far in left field on what they believe, yet they say it so confidently that there is no way you can persuade them otherwise. Paul describes a person who has been so deceived by false teaching that they will not believe the truth no matter what you tell them, no matter even if you show them in God's word what the truth is. And yet they prove in their false belief that they actually know nothing. Instead, he says, they have an unhealthy craving for controversy and for quarrels about words which produce envy, dissension, slander, evil suspicion, constant friction among people who are depraved in mind and deprived of the truth. These false teachers in Ephesus, they loved controversy and they loved drama. We all know people who love drama. Isn't that what Christmas is kind of about sometimes? The drama that we gather within our families sometimes on Christmas Eve or Christmas Day. Some people that we know, they just crave drama. They crave conflict. 
They love the energy and sometimes the devastation that surrounds a good fight. Some people like to disagree simply for the sake of disagreement. They love to parse words and argue, not for the good of the gospel, not for the good of the church, but to satisfy this unhealthy craving that they have inside of them. There are some people in the church who actually don't want peace and unity because it doesn't satisfy this unhealthy craving that Paul describes here that they have. So Paul warns us that these types of controversies produce sin. The types of behaviors that he lists here, envy, dissension, slander, evil suspicion, the false teachers in Ephesus were doing just these things. And we learned earlier in the letter that not only were they doing these things, it's not as if they were doing it by accident. They were intentional in their false teaching. They actually desired to divide the church. So false doctrine leads to this type of behavior because it doesn't focus ultimately on all of the things that Jesus was about. So how do we combat this type of behavior in the life of our church? And the simplest and easiest way to do so is to stay, again, as close as possible to God's Word. Make the Bible the main character of everything that we do as a church, in our worship services, as we plan them. The goal is for you to leave having been immersed in the Scriptures. That is the most helpful thing that we can do for one another. As we plan our services from week to week, the goal is never for you to leave impressed by anything that Reed or myself or any of the pastors do. The goal is for you to leave transformed by the singing, reading, praying, and preaching of God's Word. Now, I'm not the brightest person in the world, but I do know this. The only transformation that will ever happen in anyone's life will come by the Spirit through the teaching or the reading of God's Word. That's how lives are transformed. And when God is at work, we will see love between brothers and sisters in Christ. We will not see slander and evil suspicion or constant friction. And it will be obvious that the Spirit is at work in the life of our church when we begin seeing these types of behaviors. We, left to our own devices, will never be able to be a unified church. Because in our flesh, we are not people of unity. We are people deceived by sin. And yet, through the hope of the gospel, our church can be unified. Not based on anything of what we have done, but what Christ has done on our behalf. So let's be a church that delights in the sound teaching of Jesus. Because it is not only good for our souls, but it is also good for our church. Number two, we also see in this passage this warning about the motive for godliness. And we learn here that the motive for godliness that these false teachers had in Ephesus was ultimately impure. They were seeking godliness for the purpose of financial gain. They were giving the appearance of holiness and piety and knowledge, not for the sake of growth in Christ, but so people would be impressed by them and they would want to compensate them for their skill set. Now this is incredibly convicting for those of us who teach God's word, for us pastors. 
we have to be asking this question. Am I motivated to be holy and righteous for the sake of godliness, or am I only motivated for holiness and righteousness so that I can keep my job and provide for my family and make money? That's the question that every pastor has to wrestle with. But it's the same for you as well. What is your true motive for godliness? Is it to set a good example for your family? Is it because it helps you in business? Does it make you more acceptable in the community? Does it give you more friends? I think about many of our brothers and sisters in different parts of the world right now who are faithfully following after Christ, seeking godliness. And their godliness, by the way, is not unifying them with their families. It's harming their business. It ostracizes them from their community. And oftentimes, being a Christian in other parts of the world results in the loss of friendship. So the motive for our godliness cannot be all of these external factors. Factors. The motive for our godliness ultimately must be for intimacy with God himself. This is the type of godliness, Paul says, that brings contentment, which is great gain, he says. And the only gain that these false teachers wanted was materialistic in nature. Paul reminds Timothy that every human being came into the world with nothing and will leave with nothing. What a profound reminder reminder for us today. As we frantically go about life spending money and time on the things of this world. And we're all guilty of it in our own many, many ways. But the only thing that counts is godliness. When we die, we know, because we've been told this our whole lives, that nothing leaves this earth with us. And yet, if we examine our lives, we realize that in our own ways, we're all guilty of pursuing materialistic things. We all have Christmas lists and items that we want for Christmas. And most of them are not the basic things that Paul talks about in this passage, which is food and clothing and shelter. If you look at the history of the church in every generation since Jesus was here, the church has always had various blind spots. For instance, in the 1700s and 1800s, Christians would gather in churches across the world, sing, pray, read scripture together, and then they would go home to their slaves and justify slavery from the scriptures. In our own country, we look back to the period of Jim Crow in the early 1900s where African Americans and whites were separated based on the color of their skin. And today we look back on that with great disgust and profound sadness. What will be the blind spot for us as American Christians living in the late 20th and early 21st century? It's impossible to predict, but I will go ahead and throw the cards on the table and say that one of the things I believe that when Christians are studying the 21st century church evangelical movement in America hundreds of years from now, they will look back and say, this generation of Christians was incredibly materialistic, that they cared tremendously about the amount of money that they had and the amount of wealth that they could consume. So consider some of these numbers as I was researching this week for my sermon. 
Out of the 7 billion people in the world today, only a third claim, and I use that in quotes, claim to be Christian. Which means that leaves 4.7 billion people who are currently on a road to an eternal hell. And 2 billion of that 4.7 billion have no access to the gospel. In one particular area of northern India, the death rate is 5,000 people a day. And the number of evangelicals in that same area is less than 0.01%. Which means 9,999 people die and go to hell every two days. Just in that part of India alone. In the country of Somalia, more than 750,000 people are on the verge of starvation. And most are without Christ. In contrast, if you make $25,000 a year, you are in the wealthiest 10% of people in the world. So, as Americans living in the West, who do have food, who do have clothing, who do have shelter, and yet many times, if we're honest with ourselves, we're still not content. We want more and more. On average, Christians give 2.5% to their churches. And North American churches give only 2% of their budgets to mission work outside of America. So based on these figures, what, what does that mean? For every $100 a North American Christian makes, they are giving $0.05 cents to the rest of the world. If we were truly content with basic food and clothing and shelter, I think we might find ourselves giving a lot more to not only our own church, but to our own church's missions budget. Now, I have to say this. When I planned this sermon, like, or this whole year, I was not thinking about Lottie Moon. It just happened to be a really cool coincidence that that happened. But the point is that God has blessed not only our church, but he has blessed almost every American Christian with far more resources than 90% of the world will ever have access to. Which does mean, brothers and sisters, that we will be held to a higher standard with what we do with what God has given us. So I share all of this with you, not to scold you, not to shame you, but to actually encourage you and excite you to see that if American Christians truly took what Paul is saying in this passage seriously and they were content with basic food and clothing, how much we as Americans could do to ensure that the gospel goes out to people all over the world who do not have any access to the hope of the gospel. But the question is, why are we never content? Which brings us to our third point. The reason, oftentimes, we're never content is because in our hearts there is a desire that we have for riches. Look at what Paul says in 9 and 10. Those who desire to be rich fall into temptation, into a snare, into many senseless and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction 
For the love of money, he says, is a root of all kinds of evils. It is through this craving that some have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many pangs. Of course, if you have read this text or any text regarding money in the New Testament, we always have to distinguish between money itself and the love of money. Money in and of itself is not the problem. We all are in agreement that you have to have money in order to survive, in order to make sure that your basic needs are met. But it's our heart towards the money that is the issue that which Paul is talking about here. Paul is warning us as he warns the church in Ephesus that the desire to be rich will lead to temptation. Which then, he says, leads us to a snare and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. We have warnings like this, not just from Paul, but Jesus himself, all over the New Testament. But if we're honest, many times we gloss over them. And we think that these warnings don't apply to us. They apply to people with more money than us. The love of money doesn't always lead to only things like embezzlement and robbing banks and selling illegal drugs. Those are the extreme examples that our minds always run to. People that love money are not just people that have private jets and are millionaires. You can make $40,000 a year and still have a love for money. It's not about the amount of money that you have. The love of money can manifest itself in good, appropriate, and legal ways also. So we must always remember that when we approach texts like this, that our standard for how we spend our money should not be, let's just make sure we're spending less than people who have private jets and, you know, 50 properties. The standard is always, what does God's word teach us about the danger and desire for riches? And it seems that those in Ephesus were so enthralled, so consumed with money, that Paul tells us they were wandering away from the faith. And this is not surprising at all. If you were to really think this through, you have seen this play out in the lives of people that you know. Money helps create confidence in ourselves rather than God. When we have money, we are less reliant on God because we can do whatever it is we want. You can travel wherever and whenever you want. You're not tied down to one geographical location, which leads, by the way, to a local church often becoming an afterthought, if not a priority at all. And when the church is not a priority, here's what happens. The church is not a priority, the gospel is not a priority, the Great Commission is not a priority, and before you know it, spiritual growth is not a priority, and people wander away from the faith. This is how it works. Until one day a person wakes up and realizes they don't need God at all. Their money has given them everything that they need. They can go wherever they want, whenever they want. They lack nothing except the most important thing that they really need, which is God himself. This is what money does. It deceives us. So how do we combat this from happening in our own lives? 
Because as American Christians, we are on the front lines, brothers and sisters, of this type of temptation. We are more tempted to this than any other people in the entire world. The answer is to hold loosely to your money and to give as much of it away as you possibly can. The greatest example I can find of this is the Methodist pastor, preacher, theologian, John Wesley. He believed that a Christian's income, as it increased, should not result in an increased standard of living, but an increased standard of giving. And here's how he went about doing this. In 1731, he began to utilize this practice. He made 30 pounds in 1731, and he lived off of 28 pounds, and he gave the remaining two pounds away. The next year, his income doubled to 60 pounds, but guess what he lived off of? He still lived off of 28 pounds, which means that he gave 32 pounds away. Over the next two years, his income continued to increase so that in the fourth year, he was able to give away 92 pounds to the poor. Now, in our economic system, this would mean that he was making roughly $160,000 a year, but living as if he made $20,000 a year. Wesley believed that Christians shouldn't merely tithe, but give away as much as possible after debts were paid and family was provided for. Now, you might find Wesley's plan to be far too radical, and I'm certainly not telling you to follow his plan completely, but I know this to be a fact. The money that we give away that God has given us, we will never regret it in this life or the next. So the more we can give away for the glory of God and for kingdom purposes around the world. We know that God is pleased with it. Never forget the words of Jesus in Mark chapter 10, verse 25, when he says, It is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. We must heed The warning that Paul gives to Timothy in this passage. So we don't end up like these false teachers who abandoned the teaching of the gospel because they were comfortable with their materialism. They had everything that they needed and yet they didn't have the very thing that they actually needed. God himself. So on this Christmas Eve, all of this talk of money and riches should ultimately point us to Jesus himself. The one who was rich, but for our sake became poor. This is what Paul tells us in another one of his letters. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you by his poverty might become rich. Never forget that Jesus left his place, seated at the right hand of the Father, to live amongst a sinful and disturbed people like you and me. And for all of us in Christ today, may we never forget how truly rich we are in Christ. And for those that are present today that are not in Christ, no matter how much earthly wealth you require or you acquire, 
you will die spiritually poorer apart from Christ. He's the only one who can save you. So I urge anyone here today who is not in Christ to repent of your sin. Place your faith in Christ alone. Receive the forgiveness that can only come through the death, resurrection of Jesus, our Lord and Savior. Let's pray. God, what a sobering message and powerful reminder this passage is. God, we as Americans are on the front lines of this temptation. So God, may we search our own hearts for how we can be more generous with what it is that you have given us. God, this is not a reason to be irresponsible or to ignore paying bills or providing for our family, but so much of what we have is really excess. We pray that your spirit over time would make us more generous. Maybe we'll never get to the point of where John Wesley was, but we can certainly examine our spending and try to think creatively about how we might do a better job of giving our money away for the sake of the gospel. God, we pray that you would continue to unify our church through the sound words of Jesus Christ, through sound doctrine. May we be unified ultimately by the work of Christ on our behalf and nothing else. We give him the glory for this service today. And it's in his name we pray. Amen.